Hi, it's your storyteller, and I want to wish you a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening, because I now have listeners all over the world, so I don't know what time you are listening, but I bring you happiness from the coast of the United States. So, we're about halfway through chapter 8 of 1984 by George Orwell. So, you're listening to The Mockingbirds, readings from the damned, and I'm just going to fall right back into it. So, put your earbuds in. I'm ready to read. Just since it's been a while, we'll recap. So, Winston went walking in the area where the proles are. And so, he saw an elderly gentleman go into a bar. And uh, he took a risk of uh, going in and speaking to the old man. So, that's where we, that's where we left off. Um, I was having a little bit of technical difficulties. Uh, apparently the mic that I bought didn't work with anything that I own. Not computers, not iThings, nothing. And uh, I tried different dongles, which that word really, that word is right up there with moist and panties for me. Dongle, okay? Um, I tried different variations of turning it off and turning it on again, apps, programs, the whole line. Never could get the external mic to read. So, y'all are just going to have to deal with shitty sound until I figure out what I need to do. And if there's anybody out there who knows how to record uh, externally from an an iThing, iPad, uh, iPhone, whatever, I would greatly appreciate a message. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at at damnedbooks underscore 451. So, if you have any ideas, let me know. Drop me a line. And um, see what we can do. You know, if I have to order something else on Amazon, just instructions, links, I don't care. I want better sound for you guys. But for now, we're just going to do it this way. All right, now we're going to get into the reading. The old man brightened suddenly. Tots, he said. Funny you should mention them. Same thing came into my edges yesterday. Don't know why. I just thinking. 
I ain't seen a towel out in years. Going right out, Dad. The last time I wore one was at my sister-in-law's funeral, and that was well. <laughs> I couldn't give you a date. Must have been 50 years ago. Of course, it was only odd for the occasion. You understand. It isn't very important about the top hats, Winston said patiently. The point is, these capitalists, they and a few lawyers and priests and so forth who lived on them were the lords of the earth. Everything existed for their benefit. You, the ordinary people, the workers, were their slaves. They could do what they liked with you. They could ship you off to Canada like cattle. They could sleep with your daughters if they choose. They could order you to be flogged with something called a cat of nine tails. You had to take a cap off when they passed them. Every capitalist went around with a gang of lackeys who, <laughs> and the old man brightened again. Lackeys, he said. Now, there's a word I hadn't heard in very long. Lackeys. That rare takes me back, does. That does. I recollect old donkeys years ago. I used to sometime go to Yard Park of a Sunday afternoon to hear them blokes making speeches. Salvation Army, Roman Catholics, Jews, Indians, all sorts was there. And there was this one bloke. Well, I couldn't give you his name, but a real powerful speaker he was. He didn't half give it to him. Lackeys, he said. Lackeys of the bourgeois. Flunkies of the ruling class. Parasites. That was another of them. And hyenas. He definitely called them hyenas. Of course... He was referring to the Labor Party, you understand. Winston had a feeling that they were talking at cross-purposes. What I really want to know was this, he said. Do you feel that you had more freedom then than you do now? Are you treated more like a human being? In the old days, the rich people, the people at the top, huh, the House of Lords, put in the old man reminiscently, the House of Lords, if you like. What I'm asking is, were those people able to treat you as an inferior simply because they were rich and you were poor? Is it a fact, for instance, that you had to call them sir and take off your cap when you passed them. The old man appeared to think deeply. He drank off about a quarter of his beer before answering. Yeah, he said. They like you to touch a cap at him. It showed respect like. I didn't agree with it myself. But I'd done it often enough. Had to, as you might say. And it was usual. I'm only quoting from what I read in the history books. 
Was it usual for these people and their servants to push you off the pavement and into the gutter? One of them pushed me once, said the old man. I recollect it like it was yesterday. It was a boat race night. Terrible rowdy they used to get on boat race night. I bumps into a young bloke on Shaftesbury Avenue. Quite a gent. He was dressed in his dress shirt, top hat, black overcoat. He's kind of zigzagging across the pavement. And I bumps into him accidentally. He says, why can't you look where you're going? He says, I says, just think you bought that bleeding pavement? He says, I like twist your bloody head off if you get fresh with mine. I says, you drunk. I'll give you in charge in half a minute, I says. And if you and if you believe me, let's put it ears and on my chest and gives me a shove as pretty near sent me under the wheels of a bus. Well, I was young in those days and I would have fetched him one only a sense of helplessness took over Winston. The old man's memories were nothing but a rubbish heap of details. He could question him all day without getting any real information. The party's history might still be true after a fashion. They might even be completely true. He made a last attempt. Perhaps I have not made myself clear. What I'm trying to say is this. You have been alive a very long time. You lived half your life before the revolution. In 1925, you were already grown up. Would you say, from what you can remember in 1925, was it better than it is now or worse? If you could choose, would you prefer to live then or now? The old man looked meditative, meditatively at the darts board. He finished his beer more slowly than before. When he spoke, it was with a tolerant philosophical air, as though the beard mellowed him out. I know what you expect me to say, he said. You expect me to say I'd sooner be young again. Most people say they'd sooner be young if Ernst Yen. You got your health and strength when you're young. When you get to my time of life, you ain't never well. I suffer something wicked from my feet. Bladder's terrible. Six and seven times at night, that gets me out of bed. On the other and there's great advantages to being an old man. You ain't got the same worries. No truck with women. That's a great thing. I ain't had a woman in over 30 years. If you credit it, nor wanted it, that's more. Winston sat against the windowsill. It was no use going on. He was about to buy some more beer when the old man suddenly got up, shuffled rapidly into the sinking urinal, side of the room the half the extra half leader was already working on him 
Winston sat for a minute, gazing at his empty glass, and hardly noticed when his feet carried him out into the street again. Within twenty years at most, he reflected, the huge simple question, was life better before the revolution than it is now, would cease once and for all to be the to be unanswerable. But even in effect, it was unanswerable even now, since with the few scattered survivors from the ancient world were incapable of comparing one age to the other. They remember a million useless things, a quarrel with a workmate, a hunt for a lost bicycle pump, the expression of a long deadster's face, the swirls of dust on a windy, windy morning 70 years ago, but the relevant facts were outside of their range of vision. They were like an ant. They could only see small objects, but not the large ones. When memory failed and written records were falsified, when that happened, the claim of the party to have improved conditions of the human life had just gotten accepted because there did not exist and never again could exist any standard against which it could be tested. At this moment, his train of thought stopped abruptly. He halted and looked up. He was in a narrow street with, with a few dark little shops interspersed among dwelling houses. Immediately above his head, there hung three discolored metal balls that looked like they had just been gilded. He seemed to know the place. <gasps> of course. He was standing outside the junk shop where he bought the diary. A twinge of fear went through him. It would have been sufficiently rash act to buy the book in the beginning, and he swore never to come near the place again. And yet... The instant that he was allowed his thoughts to wander, his feet brought him back to their own accord. It was precisely against suicidal impulses of this kind that he hoped to guard himself by opening the diary. At the same time, he noticed that although it was nearly 21 hours, the shop was still open. With the feeling that he could be less conspicuous than hanging outside about the pavement, he stepped through the doorway. If questioned, he could plausibly say he was trying to buy razor blades. The proprietor had just lighted a hanging oil lamp, which gave off an unclean but friendly smell. He was a man of perhaps sixty, frail and bowed, with a long, benevolent nose and mild eyes distorted by thick spectacles. His hair was almost white, but his eyebrows were bushy and still black. His spectacles, his gentle, fussy movements, and the fact that he was still wearing an aged jacket of black velvet gave him a vague air of intellectuality. 
as though he had been some kind of literary man, perhaps a musician. His voice was soft, as though faded, his accent less debated than the majority of the proles. I recognized you on the pavement, he said immediately. You're the gentleman that came in and bought the young lady's keepsake album. That was a beautiful bit of paper, that was. Cream laid, used to be called. There had been no paper like that made for, oh, I dare say 50 years. He peered at Winston over the top of his spectacles. Is there anything special I can do for you, or you just want to look around? I was passing, said Winston, vaguely. I just looked in, and I don't want anything in particular. Just as well, said the other, because I don't suppose I could have satisfied you. He made an unapologetic gesture with his soft-palmed hands. You see how it is? An empty shop, you might say. Between you and me, antique trade's just about finished. No demand any longer. No stock either. Furniture, china, glass, all been broken up by degrees. And of course the metal stuff, mostly been melted down. I ain't seen a brass candlestick in years. The tiny interior of the shop was in fact uncomfortably full but there was nothing in it of any slightest value the floor space was very restricted because of all the round all around the walls were stacked innumerable dusty picture frames in the window there were trays of nuts and bolts worn out chisels pen knives with broken blades tarnished watches that did not even pretend to be in working order, and other miscellaneous rubbish. Only on the small table in the corner was a litter of odds and ends, lacquered snuff boxes, agate brooches, and the like. Something as though they might include something interesting. As Winston wandered over the table, his eye was caught by a smooth, round thing that gleamed softly in the lamplight. He picked it up. It was a heavy lump of glass, curved on one side, flat on the other, making almost a hemisphere. It was peculiar softness as of rainwater in both color and texture of the glass in the heart of it magnified by the curved surface there was a strange pink convoluted object that recalled a rose or a sea anemone what is this said winston fascinating that's coral that is the old said the old man it must have come from the indian ocean they used to kind of embed it in the glass. 
that wasn't made less than a hundred years ago. More, by the look of it. It's a beautiful thing, said Winston. It is a beautiful thing, said the other, appreciatively. But there's not as many, they'd say, so nowadays. He coughed. <coughs> that just so <coughs> happened <coughs> that if you wanted to buy it, it cost you four dollars. He can't remember when a thing like that would have fetched eight pounds. Eight pounds, well, I can't work it out, but it was a lot of money. Who cares about genuine antiques anyway? Even with the few that's left. The man coughed again. <coughs> Winston immediately paid over the four dollars and slid the coveted thing in his pocket. What appealed to him about it was not so much its beauty, but the air it seemed to possess of belonging to an age quite different than the present one. The soft, rain-watery glass was not like any glass he had ever seen. The thing was doubtedly attractive because of its apparent uselessness, though he could guess that it must once have been intended as a paperweight. It was very heavy in his pocket, but fortunately it didn't make much of a bulge. It was a queer thing, even a compromising thing for a party member to have in his possession. Anything old, or for that matter, anything beautiful, was always vaguely suspect. The old man had grown noticeably more, more cheerful after receiving the four dollars. Winston realized he would have accepted three, even two. There's a room upstairs that you might care to take a look at, he said. Not much to it. Just a few pieces. We'll do with the light if we go on upstairs. He lit another lamp, and with a bowed back, he led the way slowly up the steep and worn stairs along a tiny passage into a room that did not give on to the street, but looked out onto a cobbled yard and a forest of chimney pots. Winston noticed that the furniture was still arranged as though the room were meant to be lived in. There was a strip of carpet on the floor, a picture or two on the wall, a deep, slatternly armchair drawn up to the fireplace, an old-fashioned glass clock with a twelve-hour face was ticking away on the mantelpiece. Under the window and occupying nearly a quarter of the room was an enormous bed with mattress still on it. We lived here till my wife died, said the old man, half apologetically. I'm selling the furniture off little by little. Now that is a beautiful mahogany bed. Or at least if you could get the bugs out of it. But I dare say you find it a bit cumbersome. He was holding the lamp high as to illuminate the whole room. And in the warm, dim light, the place looked curiously inviting. 
a thought flitted through Winston's mind that it would probably be quite easy to rent the room for a few dollars a week if he dared take the risk. It was a wild and possible notion to be abandoned as soon as he thought of it, but the room had awakened him a sort of nostalgia, an ancestral memory. It seemed to him that he knew exactly what it felt like to sit in a room like this, an armchair beside an open fire with your feet in the fender and a kettle on the hob, utterly alone, utterly secure, nobody watching you, no voice pursuing you, no sound except the singing of the kettle and the friendly ticking of the clock. There's no, there's no telescreen, he couldn't help but murmuring. Ah, said the old man, I never had one of those things. Too expensive. And never seen feel the need of it somehow. Now that's a nice gate leg table in the corner there. Of course you'd have to put new hinges on it if you wanted to use the flaps. There was a small bookcase in the other corner. Winston gravitated towards it. Uh, contained nothing but rubbish. The hunting down and destruction of books had been done with the same thoroughness in the parole quarters as everywhere else. It was very unlikely that there existed anywhere in Oceania a copy of book printed earlier than 1960. The old man, still carrying the lamp, was standing out in front of the picture in a rosewood frame that hung on the other side of the fireplace, opposite the bed. Now, if you happen to be interested in old prints at all, he began delicately. Winston came across the picture. It was a steel engraving of an oval building with rectangular windows, a small tower out front. There was a railing running around the building, and at the rear end there appeared to be a statue. Winston gazed at it for some moments. It seemed vaguely familiar, but he did not remember the statue. Frames fixed to the wall, said the old man, but I could unscrew it for you, I dare say. I know that building, said Winston finally. It's a ruin now. It's in the middle of the street outside Palace of Justice. That's right, outside the law courts. It was bombed in, oh, so many years ago. It was a church at one time. Saint, uh, Saint, 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 Saint Clement's Dane, its name was. He smiled apologetically, as though conscious of saying something slightly ridiculous. He added, orange and lemons, say the bells of Saint Clement's. What's that? said Winston. Oh, orange and lemons, say the bell of St. Clemens. It was a rhyme we had when I was a little boy. How it goes on, I don't remember, but I know how it ended. Here comes a candle to light up your bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. It was kind of a dance. They held out 
their arms for you to pass under. And when they got to the, here comes the chopper to chop off your head, they brought their arms down and caught you. It was just names of churches. All London churches were in it. All the principal ones, that is. Winston vaguely wondered what century in the church belonged. And it was always difficult to determine the age of London buildings. Anything large and impressive, if it was reasonably new in appearance, it was automatically claimed to have been built since the Revolution, while anything that was obviously of earlier age was ascribed to some dim period known as the Middle Ages. The centuries of capitalism were held to have produced nothing of value. One could not learn history from architecture any more than one could learn it from books. Statues, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of streets, anything that might throw light upon the past had been systematically altered. I never knew it had been a church, she said. There's a lot of them left, really, said the old man, though they've been put over for other uses. Ah, now how did that rhyme go? Ah, Orange and lemons, say the bells of St. Clemens. You owe me three farthings, said the bells of St. Martin's. There, now, well, that's as far as I can get. A far thing that was a small copper coin looked something like a cent. Where were St. Martin's? Winston asked. St. Martin? I was still standing. It's in the Victory Square along with the picture gallery. A building with a kind of triangular porch. Pillars out front. Big flight of steps. Winston knew the place well. It was the museum used for propaganda displays of various kinds. Scale models of rocket bombs. Floating fortresses. Waxwork tableau illustration illustrating in, enemy atrocities and the like. St. Martin in the fields, it used to be called, supplemented the old man. Though I don't recollect any fields, any in those parts. Winston did not buy the picture. It would have been an encouraged possession than the paperweight, and impossible to carry home, unless it was taken out of his frame. But he lingered for some minutes more, talking to the old man, whose name he discovered was not Weeks, as one might have gathered from the inscription over the shop front, but Charrington. Mr. Charrington, it seemed, was a widower, aged 63, and had inhabited this shop for 30 years. Throughout that time, he had been intending to alter the name over the window, but he never quite got to the point of doing it. All the while, they were talking about the half-remembered rhyme kept running through Winston's head. Orange and lemons, says the bell of St. Clemens. You owe me three farlings, said the bells of St. Martin's. It was curious. When you said it to yourself, you had the illusion of actually hearing bells. The bells lost 
of a lost London that still had existed somewhere or another, disguised and forgotten from the ghostly steeple after another after another, he seemed to hear them peeling forth, yet so far he could remember he had never in real life heard church bells ringing. He got away from Miss Charrington and went down the stairs alone, so as to not let the old man see him going out into the street before stepping out the door. He had already made up his mind after a suitable interval, a month, say, he would take the risk of visiting the shop again. It was per perhaps not more dangerous than shrinking in an evening at the center. A serious piece of folly had come back here in the first place, after burying, buying the diary and not knowing whether the perpetrator of the shop could be trusted. However, yes, he thought again, he would come back. He would buy further scraps of beautiful rubbish. He would buy the engraving of St. Clement's Danes. He would take it out of his frame and carried it concealed under the jacket of his overalls. He would drag the rest of that poem out of Mr. Charrington's memory. Even the lunatic project of renting the room upstairs flashed momentarily in his mind again. For perhaps five seven seconds of, of exhaustion, Exultant, exult perhaps for five seconds of a pause made him careless, and he stepped out into the pavement with much as a preliminary glance through the window. He even started humming to an improvised tune. Orange and lemons, say the Saint bells of St. Clement's, you owe me three farling, say the Suddenly, his heart turned to ice and his bowels to water. A figure in blue overalls was coming down the pavement, not ten meters away. It was the girl from the fiction department, the girl with dark hair. The light was failing, but there was no difficulty in recognizing her. She looked straight at him in the face, then continued walking quickly on as though he had not, she had not seen him. For a few seconds, Winston was too paralyzed to move. He had turned to the right and walked heavily away, not noticing for a moment that he was going in the wrong direction. At any rate, one question was settled. There was no doubting any longer that the girl was spying on him. She must have followed him here, because it was not credible that by pure chance she would have happened to be walking on the same evening the same obscure back street kilometers distance from any quarter where any party members lived there was a great too great of a coincidence she really was an agent of the thought police or simply an amateur spy whatever she was it hardly mattered it was enough that she was watching him, probably seen him go into the pub as well.
It was an effort to walk. The lump of glass in his pocket banged against his thigh with each step. And he was half-minded to take it out and throw it away. The worst thing was the pain in his belly. For a couple of moments, he had the feeling that he would die if he didn't reach the lavatory soon. But there were no public lavatories in a quarter like this. Then the spasm passed, leaving a dull ache behind. The street was a blind alley. Winston halted, stood for several seconds, wondering vaguely what to do, then turned around and began to retrace his steps. As he turned, it occurred to him that the girl had only passed him three minutes ago and that by running he could probably catch up with her. He could keep her on track till they were in some quiet place, then smash her skull in with a cobblestone. The piece of glass in his pocket would be heavy enough to do the job, but he abandoned the idea immediately. Because even the thought of making any physical effort was unbearable. He could not run. He could not strike a blow. Besides, she was young and lusty and would defend herself. He thought also of hurrying to the community center and staying there until the place closed so as to establish a partial alibi for the evening. But that was too impossible. A deadly lassitude had taken a hold of him. All he wanted to do was get home quickly and sit down and be quiet. It was after 22 hours when he got back to the flat. The lights would be switched off the main at the at the main at 23:30 he went into the kitchen and swallowed nearly a teacup full of victory gin then he went to the table in the alcove sat down took the diary out of the drawer but he didn't open it at once from the telescreen a brassy female voice was squalling a patriotic song of sorts he sat staring at the marbled cover of the book trying without success to shut the voice out of his consciousness. It was at night they came for you. Always at night. The proper thing was to kill yourself before they got you. Undoubtedly, some people did so. Many of the, disappeared, many of the disappearances were actually suicides. But it needed desperate courage to kill yourself in a world where firearms or any quick and certain poison were completely unprocurable. He thought with some astonishment of the biological uselessness of pain and fear, the treachery of the human body which always freezes into inertia at exactly the moment when special effort was needed. He might have silenced the dark-haired girl if he had only acted quickly enough, but precisely because the extremity of his danger, he had lost the power to act. It struck him in that moments of crisis, one is never fighting against an external enemy, but always against one's own body. Even now, in spite of the gen, dull ache in his belly made a consecutive thought impossible. And it and it is the same, he perceived. All seemingly heroic or tragic situations 
on the battlefield, in the torture chamber, on the sinking ship. The issues that you were fighting are always forgotten because the body swells up until it fills the universe. And even when you're not paralyzed by fright or screaming in pain, life is a moment-to-moment struggle against hunger or cold or sleeplessness, against a sour stomach or aching tooth. He opened the diary. It was important to write something down. The woman on the telescreen had started a new song. Her voice seemed to stick in his brain like jagged splinters of glass. He tried to think of O'Brien, for whom or to whom the diary was written, but instead he began thinking of other things that would happen to him after the thought police took him away. He would not, it would not matter if they killed you at once. To be killed was what you expected, but before death, nobody spoke of such things, yet everybody knew of them. There was the routine of confession that they that had to be gone through the groveling on the floor the screaming for mercy the crack of broken bones the smashed teeth teeth and bloody clots of hair why did you have to endure it since the end was always the same why is it not possible to cut a few days or weeks out of your life nobody Nobody ever escaped detection, and nobody ever failed to confess. When once you had succumbed to thought crime, it was certain that by a given date, you would be dead. Why, then, that horror, which altered nothing, have to lie embedded in the future time? He tried, with with a little more success, than before to summon up the image of O'Brien. We shall meet in the place where there is no darkness, O'Brien had said to him. He knew what he knew what it meant, or thought he knew. The place where there is no darkness was the imagined future, which no one could never see, but which, by foreknowledge, could mystically share in. But the voice from the telescreen nagging in his ears could not follow the train of thought further. He put a cigarette in his mouth, and half of the tobacco probably fell into his tongue. The bitter dust was difficult to spit out. The face of Brig Brother swam into his head, displacing that of O'Brien, just as it had done a few days earlier. He slid the coin out of his pocket and looked at it. A face gazed at him, heavy, calm, protecting. But what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark mustache? Like leaden Neil, the words came back at him. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance strength okay so 1984 is separated into three different books we just got done finished reading book one 
and I don't want to start book two until the next reading, which seems obvious, right? So I decided to um, talk about something in book one, uh, and that is the ministries. Um, so this is a time after the world has been ravaged by this huge world war, okay? And so now the citizens of Oceana are these fearful, paranoid uh, citizens that pledge to this regime run by Big Brother. And so basically they are controlled through basically these different ministries. So we have the Ministry of Plenty, which is the opposite of what it sounds like. Uh, ministry of Plenty, Ministry of Truth, Ministry of Love, and the Ministry of Peace. And in the book, this is called Double Speak. Double Speak is basically an opposite that has been accepted as a truth. Make sense? So the Ministry of Plenty, it perpetuates famine and scarcity. Ministry of Truth rewrites history and lies. Ministry of Love, this is uh, supposed to be their like police. But instead of having police, they have the thought police and the patrols. Um, and basically they create fear by torture. And then the Ministry of Peace, it maintains war. So, I found this question. Explain the purpose of the ministries and what they reveal about life under Big Brother. And so each one is named after the opposite of what their purpose is. In the book, this is referred to as double speak or the new truth that was created out of lies. So we're going to start with the ministry of truth because that's where Winston works. Um, there are many parts within the ministry of truth. Um, like they have the ministry of fiction um, where they rewrite the books to maintain party orthodoxy and they, there's uh, there's a um, there's part that does porn for the proles um, but Winston works in the part that basically rewrites history. Um, so his job is this pneumatic tube brings him a news clipping, a note, photo, anything that goes against what is going on in the present. It's where that quote comes from. Who controls 
the future controls the past. Who controls the present controls the future. So, basically, he is taking the past, putting it in the present, and then rewriting it so that it's in the future. So, all of the things that come through this too need to be, uh, quote, um, uh, altered. But it's basically, um, he has to completely rewrite whatever it is. Um, there's a scene in the book where he has to rewrite this article completely. Because it doesn't meet Insoc. Insoc is like the symbol of the party. It doesn't meet Insoc's rules. So, so he rewrites it. And then he takes the original slip and throws it down basically a burning trash can. It's called a memory hole. Again, devil speak. Because it gets you throw it down in a tube of fire, it no longer exists. So there's no more memory of it. So that does words like the ministries and memory hole and there's gonna there's gonna be a lot coming up that's double speak two plus two equals five if the party tells you that two plus two equals five two plus two equals five understand all right moving on ministry of love this is the most terrifying min ministry out of all four it says it's in charge of law and order but this is where the thought police come in and the um, the patrols and so there that ministry is basically it's a torture chamber and they torture the traitors of the thought or anybody who doesn't meet, you know, party norms or what they call orthodoxy. And basically, they torture them until they are an empty shell of a person that will adhere to the party like an Autobot. They are no longer human. They just. They're a zombie for the party. Um, Ministry of Plenty. In charge of the economy. And as you know. Their economy sucks. Everybody's poor. Everything is dirty. So. Again. Double speak. Ministry of Plenty, what they do is they rearrange rationings and distribution uh, so they can control the population by providing just enough to maintain control of party members. And then the Ministry of Love in charge of war. Really, there is their thing is to just change who we are fighting, like which one is our enemy, which one's our ally. And then 
that information goes to the ministry of truth. See what I'm saying? They all work together. So, all of these ministries, they represent lies, oppression, deception, and paranoia under Big Brother. So, my question to you is, would you like to live in a world like this? Where everything is controlled. The history is rewritten. And you could be tortured to an empty shell that makes you no longer human. I know I wouldn't want to live in that. But yeah. So, since... Um, So yeah, so that's my um, second part of the podcast, uh, so we can start book two, and uh, I'm excited for that. Uh, all right, well, there it is, I'll see you guys later. thing. I got this question in my uh, DM box on Twitter and apparently it's from like I think like a high school student and the question is what inspired you to start a podcast reading banned books? Well Jay here we go. Uh, so obviously I am the voice behind the Mockingbird readings uh, in, the po in the podcast world. I go by the storyteller. Um, my podcast is not that old. It's only a couple months old. But I have read Fahrenheit 451. Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Scarlet, Fight Club, and we're doing 1984 now. I think that's all of them. There might be one more in there. doesn't matter. Um, I was inspired to start this podcast because I love reading. <laughs> Honestly. Anna, I love reading to people. I taught kindergarten for a while, and I loved reading books to them uh, and getting them interested in reading. My nephew, I uh, got him interested in reading with the uh, Harry Potter books. Um... And so I thought, at first I was just going to read books that I liked. But then I was like, you know what? Banned books. I want to read banned books. Books that were banned at one time. Books that are currently banned. Uh, 
uh, in schools because they had some controversial idea like the book 1984 um, it was written in 1948 and it has themes of communism and so it was banned um, 1984 sorry Fahrenheit 451 you're talking about censorship uh, Fight Club Fight Club's banned for a lot of reasons but mostly for violence uh, and extreme sexual uh, themes um, a study in Scarlet this is funny it, it was banned because the Mormons didn't want to be made fun of. So, but I believe that these books need to be read. Books should not be censored. Not held, nothing should be censored. I believe in a freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to protest, no matter what you're protesting, as long as you're not burning shit down. I don't care if you are a Black Lives Matter or a fucking neo-Nazi. You, that neo-Nazi, you can get on your own soapbox and drown his ass out. But I'm afraid in this society, we have become angry. Like... We will protest a speaker at a college just because we don't agree with their views. Well, why don't you enter that auditorium and see what their views are? You may agree with some of them. You may not. But you can always walk out of that auditorium instead of being foolish and holding up signs and screaming at people. Go listen. And the same goes for books. Books contain ideas. They contain knowledge. They contain creativity. I mean, you can take a book like a comic book and there's themes in those comic books. If you look at Captain America, we'll go with him. The common theme with him in the comic book is he is patriotic. He represents America. Um, And, and and then you you know like you have the darker ones like Jessica Jones and Alias um, who represents the darker side of the comic book world so even things as simple as comic books contain ideas and they contain creativity just because there's pictures doesn't mean it's wrong. 
Where the Wild Things Are was banned because it had imagination and magic. A little boy dressed in a fox suit going to an imaginary island where he meets monsters, dances with them, and then goes home? Where's the harm in, in reading this to your children? Um, so yeah, I believe these books should be read. These books should be heard. Um, Because they are important. 1984 is important. Fahrenheit 451 is important. The Hunger Games is important. Because if we don't pay attention to some of these books, we're going to end up just like that. And another reason I like to read is I am dyslexic and um, I have found on the Kindle there's a font for dyslexia so I wanted to thank Amazon because I can read books now so um, it was a long-form answer uh, and if you don't want to listen to this section fucking fast forward through it but anyway i love you guys i love my listeners and i will see you on the flip side